Love to have you take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19, sermon notes in your bulletin, I know, will be a good help to you, as always. A couple of my follow-up comments to the things that you were laughing at on the screen a moment ago. I realize that there's always a, see, there's a snarky part of me that lies buried about an inch below the surface. And every time I, I go to a thing like, uh, you know, like an Easter egg hunt, and yeah, I was, I was here, and then I was there, and then I was here, and, and um, walking along that, that, that big area, a central Bible along with grace, of course, sister churches to us, man, you have to be careful you don't crush these things. And I was busy thinking, okay, this isn't a hunt. Um, there they are. And if, <laughs> if it were me, see, it would be a whole different, uh, different day in Easter egg hunts. No, we'd be on some 20-acre forest. You wouldn't see one. And the kids would say, well, where are they? And I'd say, it's the point. Hunt. I know. But (laughs) the children, of course, would flee from me, rush back to the big field. There were so many Easter eggs out there getting stepped on. I was picking up pieces and going, Snickers. Wow, there's an extra Snickers. I'll take care of that. So it worked out fine. There was a lot. So I didn't, was not taking children, uh, candy from children. Please do not, do not hear me say that today. Welcome to all of you and welcome to those of you on our live stream. Always good to have you, have you with us today. Good on all of that. Uh, boy, as you, as you come to uh, our text this morning, Luke 19, want to just tell you what we're doing here. We're stepping away from our normal study this year. That would be 2 Corinthians. And for this Sunday and then Good Friday evening and then uh, Easter Sunday morning, we will find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. Just, just working through the text, uh, Luke 19, Luke 23, Luke 24, as we remember those significant events in the life of Jesus. Then we'll be back into 2 Corinthians after that, uh, the next week in April. Uh, as, we, as we come to these texts, uh, I, I'm wanting us to notice big picture themes. You, you look at your sermon notes and go, good night, man, who planned this? Luke 19, 1 through 48? Um, if we're going to go word by word, we're in deep trouble. It's going to be a very long morning. Well, <clears throat> here's the thing. In, in doing Bible study and in preaching, sometimes it's good to go smaller and shorter and little bite-sized things, that's good. Some churches just kind of always stay there, no problem. However, effective Bible study means you also need to do big picture stuff because sometimes there are themes and, and just wonderful truths that run through a text that if you look at it in little bites, you just don't notice, you see. So, so today we're doing that, and I'm especially after, in these three uh, sermons, um, the, I, I'm wanting us to capture the emotion that's involved. Because there is a rise and fall of emotion, very, very human. So God is at work, big divine things indeed, but involving humans, people just like us. So Luke 19 today, optimism, a prelude to a party. Well, at least that's what everybody involved thinks they're getting. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, glorious day. Emotion is high. It doesn't get any better than this. I mean, it can only go up from here. And then Good Friday, and, and our theme for these three, hope and despair colliding. Despair, the, the crash of emotion from what can go wrong to everything, everything going wrong, and all the things you hoped and dreamed suddenly shattered. That's Friday evening. Easter Sunday morning, we often think, well, it's perfect again. Wrong. No, not quite. As that Easter morning dawned, the disciples were were slow, many of them, slow to understand, 
slow to believe, struggling to wrap their head around. Don't think these first century people were just so gullible, like everybody rises from the dead. No, they were pretty smart about this stuff. And they knew that people didn't normally rise from the dead. And many of them were slow to believe, just like you would be. Seriously, people. So the rise and fall of emotion, and we, we step into that today. All right? So you have Luke 19 in front of you, your sermon notes. And uh, boy, we get, to, we get to step into some good things today. I've given you at the very top of those sermon notes under Palm Sunday kind of an explanation of what this is all about. Uh, for one, I think it's good for all of us to remember those big picture themes. Um, maybe an elevator speech, you hear people talk about that. What you, could, what you could say in 30 seconds or a minute if someone asked you about it. Here would be a, an example of that. What's Palm Sunday about? You could say this. Here's the story that God is telling. It's a story of redemption. It's a wonderful story. Here it is. And this would be an example of how you could say Palm Sunday fits in this way. Now, what I want to do is pray for us and then uh, say a few other words of introduction in the text, and off we'll go to take a look at the three different movements in this larger section. All right? Would you pray with me, please, then? Our Father, as always, it is good to open the Scriptures together. Thank you for telling us your great story of redemption. Because if you had not told us this story of redemption, we would not know it. We couldn't make it up. This isn't the story we would create. But you, from the beginning of time and before, were writing a story. A story of the display of your greatness, your glorious attributes, who you are, and how you would display those to the creation that you would, you would make. Thank you for this. Thank you for including us in your story of redemption. And I pray that today, for all of us who are present in the room uh, throughout the morning, those who are listening elsewhere, participating even later, that you would draw each of us a step closer to you wherever we're at with you today. If we know you well, or if we're just not sure of this whole thing, our Father, would you help us? Help us today as we open the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Something that we're going to have our eye on in today's text is, is the expectation of Jesus' followers. We're all expecting something from God. Let's just say it, okay? Everybody. Everyone's expecting something from God. And I'll be asking you to think about that today. Jesus' first century followers were expecting something from this Messiah figure. Jesus is supposed to be the Jewish Messiah. So they're not sure about that for a while. And then they start figuring it out and start, but then they ask another question. I have this on your sermon notes in front of you under the section called today's text. They begin to ask, what kind of Messiah is this? What is he here to do? And does he match my expectations of him? Because we're going to see in the text, and of course in our own lives, sometimes um, God doesn't do what we expect him to do. And certainly Jesus didn't do what people expected him to do. The long-promised Messiah, what has he come to do? Now, uh, we're going to look at Luke 19 then under three different sections, and you see them outlined there in your sermon notes. If you just kind of look at that for a moment, my three headings then, uh, verses 1 through 10, and then section uh, 2, 11 through 27, and then 28 to, to 48, the three headings, I want to give due credit where credit is due, because otherwise you're plagiarizing and nobody likes that. But it, here at Sunset, we have a preaching team. 
Of course, uh, every Sunday morning, someone's preaching here, someone's up at Central Bible, someone's down at Grace, and we work together on the same text. And uh, every now and then, well, we do every week, we share our, our thoughts, we share our notes with one another. Matt got his done ahead of me this week, okay? And I looked at his three headings and said, those are good. So I'm going to use those because we do that sort of thing periodically. So I got a hold of Matt. I said, hey, Matt, I like your three headings. If you recognize them at sunset, I borrowed them. Are we cool? And of course, because they do that to me sometimes too. So good. I, but I want you to know um, a number of these things. Matt got there first. And I, I, anyway, I appreciate having a preaching team. Works out well that way. There, I'm not plagiarizing. So, so verses nine uh, verses 1 through 10, this first heading, Zacchaeus. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And then you have a parable, and then you see Jesus in the classic Palm Sunday, Sunday setting, which is what you came expecting to hear. This whole unit is held together, though, by words that, that make it very clear. Luke is telling a story. So he says, as he's entering, and then is verse 11, as they heard these things, now he's telling this. And then verse 28, when he had said these things, he went on ahead. It's building. There's a story being told in all of chapter 19. That's why we're looking at the whole thing. It's, I believe Luke intended that all of this would tell one story. So I'm going to read then verses 1 through 10. We'll talk about Zacchaeus, and we're going to go kind of quickly in order to make this happen. All right? So Luke 19, 1 through 10 God's word. He entered Jericho, and this is Jesus, of course. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. All of us learned, of course, indeed, he was a I know. I'm not sure we sing that anymore because it's not politically correct. We don't, we can't, it's, you just can't do that. Um, he, he was height. I, I don't know. He ran on ahead and he climbed up a tree. I know it's not good. R- climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house Today, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that would be religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save, what is it? Don't, don't forget the term. The son of man has come to seek and save the lost, indeed. Now, heading number one then, Zacchaeus is an unlikely convert. Uh, this is true for a whole lot of reasons, but honestly, in a Jewish crowd, if you were going to think ideal follower of any good rabbi, you wouldn't think of him. He's described in the text, of course, as a chief tax collector and rich, and if you know your, your history, of course, you know that being a tax collector meant that you were a collaborator, a collaborator with the Romans. Uh, Israel at this time was an occupied country, and nobody likes that. The Romans, of course, were everywhere, and any, any good... A Jewish person wanted to throw the Romans out and, and take over again. They wanted to get rid of the 
of, of the invaders. Uh, I like to think of this. I'm not intending to poke fun at anybody's political views. This is the mega idea as opposed to MAGA. You picking up what I'm laying down? Make Israel great again. No, really, it was a party. They weren't just described as that, but it was make Israel great again. That really was the prevailing, but under the, under the, you know, the surface idea of all the Jewish folks. We want to see Israel made great again. And the Messiah is supposed to do that. Everyone knows it. The Messiah is supposed to show up on a white horse and what, die for our sins? No, throw out the Romans. This whole die for our sins thing was not on the radar. So, so the, the, their plan was Messiah, Old Testament, kingdom. I've read Isaiah. Hey, it's going to be great. So this kingdom is going to come in a Messiah who heals the sick and raises the dead and feeds people with very small things. He can lower taxes and he's going to get rid of the bums, see? And he's going to make Israel great again. This is amazing. And let me say, that was the common narrative. Everybody knew it. Mega, make Israel great again. The disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, were in it too. That's what they believed. You can trace this through all the Gospels, where, where they see, wow, if he's the Messiah, then, then in this cool kingdom, Jesus, can I sit next to you on the right? Can I sit next to you on the left? How about that? Uh, Matthew 16, you remember Jesus uh, talking to Peter. Peter makes that great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, Messiah. And uh, Jesus says, yes, you're right. And then shortly thereafter, he says, and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. I'm going to die a wicked death on the cross. And, and Peter says, remember privately, he rebukes him. Lord, get a better attitude. That's not a positive mental attitude. PMA, my goodness sakes, you're not going to take over with that kind of a, of a narrative. You remember this? Because it doesn't fit what they were expecting. We need a good political guy. In fact, even the death of Jesus and his resurrection didn't disabuse them of that notion. Because in Acts 1, as they're on the Mount of Olives and Jesus is just getting ready to leave, they ask him again, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still planning on this cool kingdom and us hanging out with the big guy. So this is a prevailing idea. Wow. Jesus comes. He calls a tax collector. He's a collaborator with the bad guys. He's rich. How do he get his money? Well, through, you know, all the normal ways, graft and corruption. It's what you do. Intimidation, fear. A good tax collector bought his station. A good tax collector knew that he could, he could work a little more money out of you, especially if you've got a little more to get. And if you say no, he's going to call Bubba and Guido, the Roman guards down the road, and turn you in. And they're going to come to your house and take your stuff, and it's not going to go well. So with full authority of the Romans, Zacchaeus can come around and say, ah, you look like you can afford this. And you have to give it. And good Jewish people hated tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector, one of the followers of Jesus. You remember the... the, the the clash that Jesus was stepping into is he calls Matthew the tax collector to be a follower of his. And if you study your Bible, another one of the disciples, Simon the Zealot. Simon Zelotes. Well, the Zealots were a political party. You know who they hated the most? These guys, tax collectors, collaborators. In fact, good Zealots, good Zealots, no, I'm not kidding. Good Zealots had a little knife of some sort hidden in their robes they were carrying 
And they were supposed to, you know, get alone with a collaborator and, and take care of business. People like, you know, Zacchaeus or say Matthew. I can just picture Jesus saying, Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, come follow me. And they kind of look at each other and go, who let you in? I mean, this is far left, far right. Whatever y'all are thinking about politics, Jesus says, I want y'all and I want you all. Come follow me. And Simon, the zealot, put the sword down. Just put the sword down. I can just imagine campfire night. As they travel from one place to another, Matthew's kind of waiting to see where Simon uh, lies down at night. Let's see, he's going he's to be right over here. I don't know about that. No, I'm not making it up. Zacchaeus then. Zacchaeus is not the kind of guy that a good Jewish rabbi should stop, speak to, and invite himself over for dinner. I mean, this is scandalous. The whole thing is scandalous. To call him an unlikely convert, I think, is an understatement. This holy person, Jesus, rabbi, he's got this great reputation, and he, he's going to go have dinner with a riffraff. It's shocking. Wow. No wonder they grumbled. Verse 7. Now, I suspect that verse 8, 9, and 10, I think these are compressed. Okay? Jesus goes to his house. I don't think that Jesus, Zacchaeus, standing uh, right there. I, I picture this at the party. I could be wrong, but I think this is at the party. So, so Jesus comes to their house. They're sitting around at table. And as the evening goes, Zacchaeus begins to realize he's in the presence of somebody very, very different from himself. And somewhere in that, that meal, I suspect this is when this is taking place, Zacchaeus says, Lord, half of my goods I'm giving to the poor. This is a statement of conversion. It is. I'm going to give it all away. No, no good rich man who got it by graft and corruption is just going to turn around and do this for fun. He's going to give it away. And if I defrauded anybody, and he kind of, you know, that's an if, like, like seriously, I, I may have. Well, he had good records. I'm going to give it all back times four. I will. This is a statement of conversion, a change of heart that's evidenced by the change of life and a change in his relationship with all of his money. I'm giving it away. Now, I picture verse 9, sometimes I picture the context and the tone of voice because in reading a narrative, you don't often have the emotion unless it's described. But I picture this as a a moment of triumph as Jesus in verses 9 and 10 speaks to this. So if they're at a party, I picture this as a moment where Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. I think this is a wonderful moment over the roar of the party. Maybe Jesus stands up and Zacchaeus has had his speech and Jesus then lifts a little goblet or whatever is going on and says, salvation has come to this house. And I think people cheered. Look, what's, look, what, look at what has happened here. This, this person was lost, is found, it has got Luke written all over it. This son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He also is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save people who would never any other way than him find their place in God's family. People who don't deserve it. People who aren't perfect. People who mess it up from the time they're young. People who don't get it right. People who've made mistakes. And not only made mistakes, done some stuff on purpose too. Jesus came to seek and save people like well, us. Perfect people in the room, please raise your hands. <laughs> the laughter will begin shortly. Yeah. No, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, those apart from him. Wow. Come. 
come, an unlikely convert. Now, I, I want to just point out one more thing here, my third bullet point on the next page. The expected response from, for, from the Jewish crowd, a rabbi, a, the Jewish elite, would expect a rabbi like Jesus to respond to a, a sinner like Zacchaeus by rebuking him and staying away. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that, isn't that what good religious people are supposed to do when you come across somebody who has it wrong? Aren't you supposed to point it out? Because surely they don't know. Isn't that your job? Wasn't that Jesus' main job? Was to say, wow, you're really bad. Here's the stuff you're doing that you shouldn't do. I'll tell you that right now. Isn't that the job of a religious person? Careful. Apparently, Jesus didn't get that memo. He would get around to that, I suppose, certainly. But that wasn't job number one, was to tell him how he screwed it up. He was supposed to rebuke him and stay away from people like that. And Jesus goes over to his house for dinner. I think about that sometimes. I'm recalling a conversation where I was rebuked for not rebuking some people and had some things to discuss. And I said back to said person, no, we haven't had that conversation yet. Have you had him over for dinner yet? That didn't go well. No, what they need is a good rebuking was the idea. And I thought, hmm, maybe not just yet. I think they need the gospel first before we smack them with the Bible. It's a thought. An unlikely convert. Well, now, we step to verse 11 and the second movement in the chapter. Uh, we call it an unsettling parable because it really is. It's, it's, it's exposing the idea that this Messiah, Jesus, is going to do it different than what people thought. So I, I'm going to read the first few verses and then survey the rest. Okay, lengthy text. As they read these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable, or as they heard these things, or hearing all of this that just happens, Jesus proceeds to tell a parable because he was, watch this, near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's the point. What kind of Messiah is this? Well, the kingdom's going to come. Messiah's here. Everybody knows this. They thought the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, here's the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He's going to tell his story. He's the nobleman. He went into a far country to receive for himself a, a kingdom and then return, calling 10 servants. He gave them 10 minas. That's a, a unit of money. Uh, you, you, if you have a study Bible, it'll tell you some approximations of what that's worth today. Not specifically the main point, but he gave them some money and tells them to be responsible with it. He says, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. So after he left, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And then the rest of the parable is a story of accountability when he, this nobleman returns. So he's introducing something. We've talked about this before. If you worship with us regularly, join us in our time in God's word, you're aware that Jesus talked about this more than once. The idea that he was going to come this first time as a suffering savior. He kept telling people that, even though they didn't get it. That is, he was coming this first time to live a perfect life and to be betrayed and to die on a Roman cross bearing our sin 
on his shoulders. He was our sin bearer. He was coming in that first, that first visit to earth. He was coming to die the death that you and I deserve because we are the sinners and he's not. He was the only perfect one who could do that. Uh, we sing uh, one of the songs that we, we, we sing to think about Jesus, my sin upon his shoulders. Indeed, that's the gospel. Jesus died a, a death to satisfy the wrath of God, the just, the just wrath of God against our sin. A, a price you and I could never afford. First of all, we're not perfect. So you can't pay for your own sin. Even if you were to live a thousand lifetimes, no one can be good enough to earn God's heaven. Not, not 30 seconds of it. So Jesus came in this first coming to die on that cross in our place. To, to be buried, to rise again from the dead, ascend to heaven. And as this story uh, tells, and other times Jesus told the same story, then I'm going to go away for an unspecified period of time. And then I'm going to come again. You find this Jesus, of course, John 14. I'll come again, receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? Well, of course. You remember the moment, we, we've studied this as we read Isaiah, looking at the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. There's this place where Jesus in his synagogue took the scroll of Isaiah, unrolled chapter 64, and read, and read part of the description of what he was to come do. And he stops mid-verse, rolls up the scroll, scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down as a rabbi would do, and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because there in Isaiah, it puts together the first coming and the second coming all at once. So his disciples saw all of that. He's going to come and heal the sick and raise the dead, give sight to the blind and so on, and, and do all of these things. And then the next line is, it'll be the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus quit reading right there. That's another day. See? Jesus knew. Old Testament scripture compressed coming one and coming two. You see, Jesus knew there's a coming as a suffering savior. And then I'm going to leave. This isn't new. It's Old Testament scripture. And then there'll be a day I'm going to come back. Second coming. Now, by the way, if you're theologically uh, precise on these things, we often think of the second coming. We refer to the rapture of the church. I'm a good pre-trib, pre-mill guy. And you're, if you mix the two, you're being imprecise. Okay, the rapture of the church isn't Jesus coming to earth. Technically, that's later. Zechariah 14, when he comes back, his feet land on the Mount of Olives. That's, a, that's the end of this whole uh, event. But, the, but Christ returning in the clouds, we rise to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, so, so we often say the second coming, and we often say that meaning the rapture of the church, imprecise, forgiven. Okay, it's okay. No one will be mad at you. But just have it straight in your head, okay? It's important, I think, that we think about these. This parable, then, is talking about Jesus. And it's a, it's a shocking reminder of accountability because if you read what happens and what follows, some of the servants come and say, hey, we did pretty well with what you gave. And he says, wonderful. And some others said, yeah, I didn't. I hid your, your talent. I wasn't responsible. And there's judgment. There's judgment. See? So it's a shocking parable. It's unsettling. It's his disciples saying, wait, wait, hold on. So isn't the king coming now? Because we all thought that was the deal. 
That's what we signed up for. Okay, so an unlikely convert, an unsettling parable. I want to go to verses 28 to 48. Read this text, and let's look at this, this, this wonderful entrance into Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday, okay? So we read then, starting verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he's covered Jericho in verse 1, 10 miles, 12 miles or so, coming up to Jerusalem. Everybody always talked about going up to Jerusalem. He drew near Bethphage and Bethany to the mount called Olivet. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, there's a valley here, you understand, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, Jerusalem, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. You will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know what day it is. Wow. Okay. Now, this, this is one of the classic tellings of that first Palm Sunday, as we call it. Palm Branch is not specifically mentioned in this text. The other gospels fill in some of those details. But what an amazing moment. I call this an unusual king. Okay, uh, understand with me, this is a crowd. There's a crowd. There is not just Jesus' disciples. There's, there's, there's a line of people going to Jerusalem because they're going up for Passover. It's Passover time. It's one of the, one of the pilgrim feasts it's described in the Old Testament where you went up to Jerusalem and it was like a holiday. It was a party. There's, there's, uh, there's joy in the air. There's people singing and, and, and dancing and laughing. It's going to be a great time. It's like Christmas and Easter and all kinds of things all wrapped up into one. And the crowd is, is enthusiastic. I mean, man, this is amazing. They're going to go up and celebrate this Passover, which is a remembrance of God's first great redemptive event, saving his people out of Egypt. It's, it's a telling of that story again, that God saves, and they're singing songs. There's, some of the Psalms were specifically memorized, and it was their songbook for going up to Jerusalem. Psalm 118 is right in the middle of that, as we heard that from Pastor Craig earlier today. It's in Psalm 118 that you read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. All those come out of Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. You've heard me say many times, we sing that or say that about every day. And and every day is a day the Lord has made. But in the Psalm, it didn't mean that. 
okay? In Psalm 118, it meant a day, a specific day. It meant the day of redemption. This is the day the Lord has made. It was looking ahead to the day of salvation, which Jesus was inaugurating as the Messiah has come, the one to save us all, as our children sang uh, a bit ago. So this is the day, this day of redemption. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so the crowd is singing, waving palm branches, and it's joyful, pent-up excitement, I call it here, pent-up excitement in the crowd. It's, it's optimism, it's hope. And I ask, it's time for the coronation of the king, isn't it? And you, you can imagine, as the crowd makes its way down the, the, the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, through which the, the blood of those lambs that were to be slain would run down that Kidron Valley, uh, historians talk about that. The big crowd, they're going to slaughter lambs and uh, from the Temple Mount, the blood will flow down. And, and here Jesus is going to walk across that on the night that he's betrayed, the Lamb of God, as he comes to, to provide the sacrifice once and for all for our sins. But, but his, the disciples begin to sing and the palm branches, all of that. Others in the crowd waving, waving palm branches. What's, what's going on? You can picture the crowd. Well, it's Jesus. It's that Messiah. You know, heals the sick, raises the dead. Him, he's coming right now. He's coming into Jerusalem right now. Whoa, optimism. Hope springs anew. It's going to be a great day. He's going to throw out the Romans. Is he? Boy, we're going to have quite a week. We're going to have a week like no other. Yes, indeed, you will. Indeed, you will. The exuberance of the crowd, Jesus weeps over the city. This is shocking as well. He weeps over the city. If you'd known, he says, verse 42, if you'd known on this day, this day, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. I've read several scholarly accounts giving chronology from the decree of Cyrus to allow God's people to come back to the land based on the book of Daniel, uh, two or three who are disconnected from each other that co- con- converge, their concepts converge, that if you follow the exact days, and some of these guys work way too hard, at some of the calendar things and holidays and take out that day, and there was an earthquake. And anyway, a couple different ones have come together to say no from the decree of Cyrus to this moment, to the presentation of Messiah the Prince, according to the book of Daniel, this is the day. There should have been an X across it on every Jewish calendar. That's the day Messiah is going to come. But they weren't paying attention. And Jesus says, if you'd known on this day, you would have been expecting me. Here I am. You, you, you missed that day on the calendar. There should have been an X. Should have said holiday. Messiah arrives. You, you, you just were carrying on busy with kids and soccer and school and work. You didn't know what day it was. Interesting. Jesus can look ahead 40 years. That's what he's referring to. If you know your history, you know that 70 AD, it's when the Romans came under General Titus and, and wiped them out. That's what Jesus is talking about. The days will come when your enemies, it's 40 years away. And all of you children running around my feet right now, you and you and you, and you're going to be grown up by then. You're going to have kids. I know exactly what's going to happen when the Romans come. And you don't see it. You can't. And Jesus weeps. <laughs> if only you knew. If 
only you knew what day it was, if only you knew who's walking in today and you don't. All you want is a political deliverer. All you want is to have your own needs met. You want to make it better politically. You want lower taxes, don't you? You want better living conditions. You want more money in your paycheck. I know you do. I got it. Is that why you need Jesus? Is that why you need a savior to fix your day-to-day problems? Is that it? What kind of Messiah were you hoping for? Because that's the Messiah they were hoping for. Just, just keep healing the sick and raising the dead. Keep giving us food out of five loaves and two fish. That'd be great. Just meet my day-to-day needs. Don't change my life. What kind of Messiah is this? Riding a donkey, beast of burden. What's he doing? That's not how Messiahs come. Verse 45, Jesus heads into the temple, and you have this account of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus making powerful enemies as this last week of his earthly life unfolds. Holding those who were misusing the temple holding them accountable. My house shall be a house of prayer. Other texts quote the rest of that from the Old Testament. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. You're stealing people blind, filling the court of the Gentiles with animal dung, the place where the nations would come. You're kidding me, Jesus would say. An unlikely convert, an unsettling parable It's not going to be what you think. An unusual king. That's what Palm Sunday really is all about. It's a day of optimism. It's a day of joy. It's a day of excitement. Beginning a week where it's going to be different. But don't miss the joy of the day. Don't miss the incongruity between what Jesus' disciples expected and what they were about to get. So, I would like to have you keep your Bibles open to Luke 19, 9 and 10. I'll make another comment there in a few moments. We're going to pray, and we're going to turn our thoughts toward communion. And in particular, as we reflect, I'd like you to use that that section called Responding to God's Word in Worship and Obedience. I'd like you to reflect on those comments as you have a moment or two to to, to sit and reflect. What kind of Savior were you expecting? What are you expecting Jesus to do? And here are some, some, some statements here for you to think about. But I want to pray, and we'll celebrate communion together in these closing moments. Would you join me in this? Father, we can feel the optimism of the crowd. We can feel peop- the, 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 the sense the, of people wanting Jesus to do their bidding, to fix their day-to-day life and make it better, to fix their problems not to die on a cross for their sin. Our Father, sometimes we do the same thing. We come to you thinking you're going to just solve all our daily problems instead of what you promised, which is to be a very present help in the midst of them. Thank you for being a Savior, the one we really need. How else could our sins be atoned for? Our Father, as we remember Christ right now in this this moment, his body broken for us, his blood shed. Would you stir our hearts to ask, what am I expecting? What am I expecting from Jesus? Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, 
We invite all of you who know Christ as your Savior to join us in remembering Christ in communion. And the way we do this these days, we invite those of you who are in the outer sections to come up the aisle by the windows to the sections here. And those of you in the middle sections, if you come right down this way, these two aisles are the returns. And of course, you'll want to get both little cups, the cracker on the bottom, I'll talk about in a moment, the cup of juice on top, you want to get both of those. And I would invite you to, to serve anyone near you who is mobility impaired or a spouse or someone else. And of course, if you prefer to just stay seated and wait this one out, you're more than welcome to do that as well. But if you'd come and, and be served and then make your way back, I'll say just a word and together we'll remember Christ. Okay, would you come? God's people have been celebrating what we call communion for a couple thousand years. All kinds of different settings, rich and poor, times of peace and times of war, large crowds, small crowds, different kinds of bread, different kinds of juice, sometimes in hiding. But for 2,000 years, remembering what Jesus did, his body broken for us, his blood shed. And so we do the same. Jesus said, do this as you remember me. And he did that because we forget. We forget, we forget, we forget. Get busy with our lives and we forget what it's all about. A little piece of bread, a cracker, it points us to the body of Christ broken for us. Let's remember him together. Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save What was it? The lost. That's you and me. Apart from Christ, every one of us. Utterly unable to save ourselves. I blew the perfection part pretty young. As did you. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That little cup of juice points us to his blood shed for us. We do this to remember him. As you come next week, you'll remember the reminder. Plenty of room at the 8 o'clock service. 8 o'clock. A.M. We'll be right here. Doors are open. Heat's on. You'll remember that even like this hour, parking lot's full. Parking lot up the road. Uh, at that right above the apartments, we have permission to use that lot. Be great, great to fill that up. Have room down here. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together as we close. Our Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for this story of redemption that we get to celebrate in full color this week. So grateful that we are part of it. Thank you for loving us as you do. Thank you for the great mercy of our Savior Jesus, the joy of a Savior. We honor you today as our Savior, Redeemer, and friend. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.